You know, whether you're in Russia or whether you're in Asia, whether you're in Africa, we all have human nature, don't we? And we all have struggles and we all have challenges. And I found that the, the God of the Bible and the God of prophecy gives us confidence as we look to the future, as we try to understand the world in which we're living in. So tonight, uh, we have a, a, a really important topic to cover. It's sort of what I call the ABCs of Bible prophecy. You see, when we talk about Bible prophecy, many people, they sort of get glassy-eyed, and they sort of think, well, that's too confusing. I could never understand it. The book of Revelation just gives me nightmares. I, I don't understand what's going on. And I understand that. When you just read it, and you don't know any of the contacts, you don't know wh uh, where, the, where those, those beasts and those images and all those stories came from, it's really sort of confusing. But if you start in the beginning, because in the, when, when, when John wrote the book of Revelation, he assumed, and God would, would have assumed, that his readers would have been familiar with the Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament, particularly the prophecies of Daniel. Daniel is the primer. It's the, it's the ABCs that help us to begin understanding prophecy. So tonight, I just want to let you know what we're going to do. Tonight, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 2. I think your brochures and, and so forth have, have already told you that, but we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2 because it is the first in time Bible prophecy. You might say, well, why do we start with Daniel chapter 2? What about Daniel chapter 1? Why do we leave Daniel chapter 1 out? Hold on to your seats because tomorrow night we're going to come back and we're going to pick up Daniel chapter 1. You might say, well, it's just a story. Daniel chapter 1 is just a story. Daniel chapter 3 is just a story. But guess what, friends? The stories of the book of Daniel are taken to the book of Revelation and used to describe things that are still future. And so as we study these stories, we're going to understand better the book of Revelation. So tomorrow night we're going to be looking at, at Revela uh, Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 3. Is that fair? Tonight we're going to start with Daniel chapter 2. It's too much to, to do more than Daniel chapter 2 in one night. Now, I have found that it's not so important what I think or what I say. All over the world, I've met people that have asked me questions, but what they really want to know is what does the Bible say? Do you agree with that? It's not so important what I think, Chester Clark thinks. What's important is what the Bible says. And so that's what we want to focus on here. And you're going to find that as we go through our nightly studies, there are so many verses, there are so many passages that we couldn't possibly turn to all of them and read all of them in the, the 45 or 50 minutes they give me to, to speak here. So I'm glad for all of you that have brought your Bibles here. I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I encourage you to bring paper to write notes on. Um, but we're not going to take the time always to turn to every verse. Does that make sense? And so we're going to be putting some of the text on the screen. I encourage you, I encourage you, I want you to, to, uh, to read and study the Bible for yourself. So take those notes, take those handouts, study it for yourself. And when I have a Bible verse, I want you to see this right away, okay? This is my, my, uh, my way of making it very clear what I'm doing. Because sometimes I'll have text on this, or I'll have passages or text, I guess I could say, words on the screen that aren't from the Bible. But when you see this Bible right there, that means it's a Bible verse, okay? And um, so if that Bible's there, it's a Bible verse, and I'm quoting directly from the, usually the King James or the New King James translation. We um, sort of take out some of the these and thous and make it you and your, right? Um, if it's a different translation, you'll see it there. I'll tell you what translation I, I used for the story or whatever we're going over. But is that fair? So you know exactly when I'm quoting the scripture and when I'm giving some other historical source or maybe even my own, my own uh, thoughts that I want to emphasize, I put them on the screen. So does that make sense? 
When you see the little Bible there, you know it's coming straight from Scripture. Write down those verses, turn to your Bibles and look it up for yourself. And that's what we're going to get into tonight. So we're starting with Daniel chapter 2. And I'm excited, are you? I'm excited to be able to look at Daniel chapter 2 together with you and uh, begin to unpack the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. But they're in Babylon. They are, um, they are captives, you might say. They're trained. They've become a part of Nebuchadnezzar's government. And um, as, we, as we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 2, and much of our time will be there, so you can just turn your Bibles there and, and follow along, we find the story of what happened one night as Daniel and his three friends are in this wonderful city of Babylon, a pagan city of Babylon, a, a, uh, a powerful city of Babylon. It was the ruler of that part of the world, the Babylonian Empire, um, covered a, a large territory. And uh, of course, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered Jerusalem, the home of Daniel and his friends. It was what was considered an impregnable city with 20 years of provisions inside the city walls so that even if siege were to be laid, they were confident that they would outlive those who were trying to conquer them. It was a a fascinating city. And yet it was a city where God had a message to give. Isn't it interesting that in a place like, like Babylon, God would send His message and in, in an ironic way, he's, he's not only sent Daniel and his friends and perhaps others from, from the country of Judah and Israel to Babylon as missionaries, he would have a message that he would share directly with the king of Babylon. It's a fascinating story as, uh, as, we, as we read it in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar would dream a dream, and it, it's amazing as he woke up the next morning, he, or maybe even during the night, he woke up and he couldn't remember what the dream was. Have you ever had a dream? You woke up in a cold sweat? Usually you remember what it was. Nebuchadnezzar had some idea that mu- this must be an important dream. It must have been important, and I think as we look on, as we see what it is, we'll see why he must have thought it was important. But he woke up and he was troubled. He couldn't, un- he couldn't remember what that dream was. Daniel chapter 2, and we pick up the story in verse 3. He's called his wise men together, his counselors. Now, you have to remember, these wise men claim to be in contact with the Babylonian gods. They claimed that they would be able to interpret mysteries and solve, uh, you know, all kinds of, of, uh, of uh, spiritual matters. And, and so he calls his, his intelligentsia together of Babylon. He calls them together and he says this, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Of course, if you were a wise man, what would you say? Now, I think the wise men had a little council together. I don't know this. This is sort of my imagination. But I imagine they had a little council together, and they said, "Um, you know what, we better be careful, because maybe he does really remember the dream, and this is a test. Um, And so they protested of his request. Um, They said, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. Now, that doesn't sound very kind or nice, does it? But you have to understand, this was a totalitarian king. This was someone who could do whatever he wanted to do, and no one could stop him. And even though these were the important men of Babylon, the the brain trust of Nebuchadnezzar, he, he was serious. 
Here he's been paying them a good salary. He's been keeping them on retainers, you know. He needs to have the information that he thought that they could give. And he thinks they're just stalling for time. Now, the, the wise men answer, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar continues, I'm sorry, here it says, However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell the dream and its interpretation. This is your choice. You either don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, and you're finished, and your family's finished. Or you tell me the dream and its interpretation, and you receive promotions and great honor. Um, the, the Chaldeans, the wise men, they said this, King, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. And they continue in, the, uh, in verse 11, they continue and they say, There is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Very interesting, because these Chaldeans obviously, obviously did not know the God of Daniel. They did not know the God that you and I serve, or as Christians we serve, because the Bible tells me, my Bible tells me, John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word of God, God Himself was made flesh, and He dwelt among us. Isn't that amazing? These Chaldeans are saying, only the gods can tell you the answer to what you're asking. And these gods don't dwell with flesh. But Nebuchadnezzar was about to learn of a god that these wise men did not know about. Infuriated by their refusal or inability to do what he asked them to do, Nebuchadnezzar sent out a decree to execute the wise men of Babylon. That's, that's, uh, that's what he, he did. He said, that if you're not going to tell me, I'm going to execute you. You're going to be finished. And just as I promised, your family is going to be with you. And, um, you know, I was, I was telling this story one time when I was in, in Russia. It was soon after communism had fallen. And, well, I guess it wasn't that soon after. It was late 90s or around 2000. And um, I remember I was telling this story and. And when we came to this point in the lecture, we, we actually, I actually decided that I would try to make it a little more, you know, understandable for the folks in their common culture. And I said, this must have made the headlines in Babylon, right? It must have been on the New York Times or the Dalton Daily Citizen, the, 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 the in big, bold print, right? I said, imagine, imagine with me. If President Putin, this was during his first presidency in Russia, if President Putin were to make a decree that all of the parliament were to be executed, would that make the news? And spontaneously, the entire auditorium erupted in applause. <laughs> and I, I was confused. I said, I, I said to my translator, why are they clapping? And he said to me, they don't like their government. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it would be that it would be on the it would be on the, all of the news stations if the if the uh, president were to execute the parliament. And and yet this is what was happening in Babylon. I'm sure that the news traveled very fast. Everyone was telling everyone else, and if there was a newspaper, it was right there on the headlines. And 
and news was traveling, Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill the wise men. It's over. He's going to get rid of them, execute the wise men. Now, as the uh, news traveled, the news came all the way to Daniel. In fact, you can, you can read the story. We won't look at those Bible verses, but um, there was a, a time when the, the, the guard of, of Babylon, the king's guard, captain of the king's guard, came and knocked at Daniel's door. Now, Daniel and his three friends were somehow connected with the wise men of Babylon. I don't know that Daniel chapter 2 makes it very clear why they were to be executed, but yet they weren't called that morning to interpret the dream. That's a little bit of a mystery, but they were evidently going to be rounded up with the rest of them, and they were going to be put to death. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, or Daniel is quite concerned about this, and he asks a request. He asks that they might be able to pray and ask their God if God would reveal to them the answer to the, queen, the king's question. That's the request. And so I can just imagine, can't you imagine how Daniel and his friends must have gone home when they found out they had a little bit of time, a little window of time? They could pray, and, and if God would reveal the king's secret to them, then they and the rest of the wise men of Babylon could live. Would that, would that lead you to start praying a little more than you typically pray, maybe more than you played last night, more than I prayed last night, if I knew that my life is in God's hands, if I don't get the answer, I don't live. Daniel and his friends prayed, and the amazing thing is, Daniel chapter 2 is a story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but it's only understandable to us because God gave the same dream to his young servant, Daniel. That little young Hebrew boy, probably not more than a teenager when he was taken to Babylon, and yet now he is dreaming the same dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, only when he awoke, he remembered every detail. Oh, God is a wonderful God, isn't he? I'm sure that after that morning when he awoke and told his friends, they must have done a little more praying and praising, right? They must have been so thankful for what God had done for them. In fact, we see it here in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 23. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's demand. What an amazing story that we see here. And uh, now that they know the answer to Nebuchadnezzar's mystery, I'm sure they didn't waste any time, but they made their way down to the palace and uh, they let the guard know that they could tell King Nebuchadnezzar what he wanted. Therefore Daniel, verse 24, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Now, wow. I mean, even if, even if Daniel was sort of in a high position, don't you think he would have had some butterflies in his stomach asking to be taken into the very presence of King Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, you know, this is a, as I mentioned, he's a little bit of a, a tyrant at times. I mean, he would just, if he got angry, he, he did what he felt like doing, and, and yet Yet Daniel goes confidently and boldly into King Nebuchadnezzar's presence. Why? Because he had bowed before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he knew there was a God in heaven who was in control. Even if things didn't look like they were going so well, there was still a death decree hanging over them. 
He knew there was a God on the throne. And so he, he goes to um, Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, I, if, if I were in Daniel's place, I might be tempted to say, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? The wise men couldn't do it. Your astrologers and Chaldeans, your magicians, they couldn't do it, but I can do it. I've got the answer. Are you ready to hear it? Don't you think it'd be a temptation to say it that way? I mean, after all, you want to survive, right? And um, listen to how Daniel introduces his, uh, his, uh, his presentation to the king. Verse tw- verses 27 and 28. The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. All right, let's stop right here. Who does, God, who does Daniel give glory to? There's a God in heaven that reveals secrets, right? And the, the focus of prophecy, friends, is not really about us. The focus of prophecy, you're going to find night after night as we study the books of Daniel and Revelation, the focus of prophecy is really to reveal God and his plan and his character for us. It's not about us and what we can do and how will we survive and what will happen. It's really about, it's really, it does tell us those things, but it's, its focus is on God and what He can do for us if we are in His hand. And so here uh, he, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, not only it's God that has made the secret known, but he, he, tells, uh, he tells Nebuchadnezzar what this was about. What, what's he saying that this is about? What will happen when? In the latter days, right? In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get a picture or a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. Not just in the future, but in the latter days, the last days. And we're going to be exploring that as we look at these prophecies. And, and I think you're going to become convinced as, convinced as I am that we're living in these latter days. And so this is a really relevant dream and, and prophecy for us. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was, was all ears. Um, he was very fascinated to find out that there was a God that he wasn't familiar with, the God of Israel. I mean, after all, he had conquered Israel. How could this God have more power than his gods? And yet he is, he is about to meet a God who actually says, listen, listen to what God says in Isaiah chapter 46 and verses 9 and 10. God says, for I am God and there is no other. How many gods are there according to the Bible? There's one God. That's what he says. I am God. There's no other. There's none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. There's no one else that can do that, he says. No other God can tell. Now, we've read, we've, I assume probably most of us have seen like some sort of a horoscope or some sort of a, a prediction of a astrology or some sort of a calendar, or maybe we've read some of Hal Lindsey's predictions or something like that. You, you, you're aware that there are other people who try to predict the future, right? But most of these predictions come out to maybe, maybe at the most 5% accuracy. Some of the scientific studies to look at these, that's about what they come out to. And God says, look, there's only one person. I'm the only one. There's none like me who can, who can write history books before the events even take place. Isn't that amazing? That's the God of Daniel. That's the God of the Bible. And so we, we, Daniel now begins to explain to King Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamed as he lay upon his bed that night. And what's fascinating to me, there, would, there might have been a possibility 
that since, I mean, we dream when we're asleep, right? Right? So Nebuchadnezzar is asleep, and how would he know, if he's forgotten the dream, how would he know that Daniel was telling him what he dreamed when he was asleep? I mean, you might say, oh yeah, I remember now, but you were asleep, right? Maybe it's just deja vu. Maybe, maybe it just sounds right. God ran an end run around that doubt or potential doubt by telling King Nebuchadnezzar what he was thinking about before he fell asleep. Aha. Uh-huh. He should remember that, right? And this is what God told through Daniel. As for you, O king, verse 29, as for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. Have you ever worried about the future? Career, job, family, finances, health. Nebuchadnezzar had a whole empire. He was going to bed that night and he was thinking about the future, maybe worrying about the future. And Daniel's now telling him what he was thinking about while he was still awake before he fell asleep and had the dream. And he says, the, he who reveals mysteries has made, made known to you what will take place. This is the dream that Neb, Nebuchadnezzar had. Are you ready? Uh, Daniel's going to describe the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. So let's go through it really quickly here. Daniel chapter 2, and we're beginning with verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. Verse 32. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet part of iron, and partly of clay. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar is an idol worshiper. Do you understand why this great image would have caught his attention? I mean, it must have been an imposing sight, a head of gold and and chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet made of iron and clay. And as an idol worshiper, I could only imagine that Nebuchadnezzar, as he's seeing this in his dream, he might have been just about to fall down and worship this image. It was obviously imposing. Maybe it was a god. But as he's watching, before he could even worship, he says in verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Now, this would be even more astounding to an idolater, right? For for an idol, what may be representing a god, to be summarily destroyed in that type of a manner must have been quite shocking. You can see why he was troubled during his dream and why he woke up as he did. But that isn't the end of the story. It continues in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. The whole image, it was gone. It was just gone. The idol was gone, and as he's watching, the stone that uh, had been uh, apparently of no human invention, because the Bible says, Daniel described it as being cut out with, without hands, right? So there's no human creating of this stone that did this work of destruction. This stone, as he watches it, the, it continues 
to change. It says the stone that struck the great image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what, a, what, an, what an amazing dream Nebuchadnezzar had. And I can understand why he would have felt a little troubled as he woke up, being concerned about this dream that he had. I mean, it would have been something that would have been quite, um, quite troubling, quite disturbing. What does it mean? What God is that representing? What's the stone that comes without human creation and destroys it all and fills the whole world? And as he woke up, he couldn't remember it. Now, we got to stop right here because I told you Daniel 2 is the ABCs of Bible prophecy. And what we're going to do is we're going to just notice a principle, okay? And um, each night we're going to see principles that will help us as we go further on. It's sort of like, you know, when you learn mathematics, you don't start with calculus. You start learning the basic properties and, and theorems, and then you're prepared for the more complex things. So our principle is that Bible prophecies are often given in symbols. When we talk about end-time prophetic visions and dreams, they're often given in symbols. And we're going to see here in Daniel chapter 2 how that works. Uh, and these symbols are interpreted by the Bible itself, okay? So we can't ask Congress to tell us what the symbols mean. We can't ask the Supreme Court. We can't ask for a popular vote. We can't ask all the different seminaries. You and I need to open our Bibles and find from the Bible itself what these symbols mean. That's how the Bible is meant to be studied. And that's how we're going to be studying it as we look through these prophecies here tonight. So the principle, really two principles right here on this slide. Bible prophecies are often given in symbols, and the symbols are interpreted by the Bible itself. Is that, you, you have that, got that? Bible prophecies are often given how? In symbols. And how do we interpret the Bible, uh, the prophecies? By the Bible itself. All right, so what we find in Daniel chapter 2, and this is what makes Daniel the, the, the primer that tells us how to interpret the Bible. When you get to the book of Revelation, when you get to the book of Revelation, you're going to find that there are not interpretations given of the prophecies, and that's why it's really confusing. There's no one that comes up to the prophet John and says, hey, John, that vision you just saw, this is what it meant, Right? You don't find that in the book of Revelation. But guess what? You do find that in the book of Daniel. And so as we, as we learn these principles of interpretation, we learn how the prophecies work so that when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll be able to apply the same principles and we will come to an understanding of them as well. And so Daniel now is going to give the interpretation. This is the dream. Now he's going to start the interpretation. If you're following along, you'll see something like that in, the, uh, in Daniel chapter 2 and verses 37 or so, uh, verse 36, this is a dream, we will tell the interpretation. How does he begin? He begins with words that must have, that must have given uh, Nebuchadnezzar some great uh, pride and joy. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 38 says, you are this head of gold, right? You are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Wow. Well, gold was the most valuable element that was listed there in that image, so Nebuchadnezzar must have been feeling pretty good about himself, right? After all, he was worried about his empire, he was worried about his legacy, he was worried how he would go down in history. And um, last week we had an archaeologist here who looked into great detail into the history of Nebuchadnezzar and how he wanted his kingdom to last forever. Um, fascinating, fascinating history. And Nebuchadnezzar, now he's proud as he hears these words, you are this head of gold. And Babylon was a great city. As I mentioned, the city of Babylon itself was, was a masterpiece of design. The, the walls were were tall, very tall, and they were so wide 
and there are multiple walls, but the, uh, the outer walls were so wide that they could run two chariots side by side along the top of the wall. There was a moat and a dry moat also around the, wall of the city of Babylon. The river Euphrates ran straight through the, river, through the city of Babylon, and there were gates that came down over, uh, over the waterway, down to the water level, so that you know, people or boats or whatever couldn't come down the river, but there were, there were walls on either side of the river as well. So as long as those gates were down along the water and the walls, the doors or the gates to the, the side walls alongside the river were shut, it was essentially an impregnable city. There was no way that anybody could get in. And of course, the moat didn't run dry. The wet moat didn't run dry because it was constantly flooded by the Euphrates. And the Babylonian Empire would last from 605 to 539 B.C. Um, largely, um, its strong point, its, its apex, was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar next was very frustrating and troubling to the king. Now, honestly, friends, <laughs> if, if you were just wanting to make a good impression on King Nebuchadnezzar, you might just stop at this point, right? You might just stop with telling him that you are the head of gold, you know. Um, but Daniel has to do what he has to do. And God has given him a message to, tear, to take to the king. And he's going to share it faithfully. And so he continues on in verse 39. After you shall arise another kingdom. What does it say? Inferior to yours. Now, Nebuchadnezzar could not have been very happy about that. He must have been quite troubled because he didn't want his kingdom to be replaced. In fact, we're going to look tomorrow night at how he tried to fight the future. How he tried to overturn the prophecy that Daniel had given. And, um, and of course, the outcome was not in his favor. But tonight we have more to talk about. We have more to, of more fools to see who have tried to fight the future. So we're going to look on as we, as we note from history. In 539 B.C., um, Nebuchadnezzar's great city of Babylon actually began to crumble. Um, he was no longer king, of course, but Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian linked forces together and they began conquering territory after territory, Egypt and Lydia, and then they marched onto Babylon. And as they came towards Babylon, they, um, they actually diverted the water out of the Euphrates River. And um, this was out of sight of the city of Babylon, so they just thought it was maybe a real bad drought or something, I don't know, but they didn't realize what was going on and they weren't really all that worried about it. But as Cyrus began to divert the river Euphrates, that made a dry riverbed which they could walk in even underneath the, the steel gates that would go down normally to protect people from coming in by that route. And, and the Cyrus Cylinder details how Babylon fell, um, how that river was, was diverted, and how on the night, the feast of Belmarduk, the prominent god of Babylon, the city was drunk, and the king Belteshazzar was, or Belshazzar was holding a, a uh, feast in the city, and he was, he was, well, they weren't guarding the city. They didn't think they needed to guard the city. Even the gates that would run along, the walls that ran along the river, those gates were left open. They didn't expect Cyrus's army to come down the riverbed and come up into those, into those gates and um, into the city without destroying the wall, without hardly a fight, Babylon fell in one night. 
the impregnable city. Now remember this, because I, I, I keep trying to, uh, I keep having to hold myself back because I don't want to get ahead of myself. When we get to the book of Revelation, Babylon is used as a symbol. And this whole story is used again. So Revelation 16, the sixth plague, all of these things, they come back. So as we look at what happens here, this impregnable city that rules the world falls in one night with the draining of the river Euphrates and, and the gates not being shut. Wow, we're going to see what this means in the last days and how we can be prepared for what's going to be coming. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1, what's fascinating is that a hundred years before this time, the prophet Isaiah was long gone and dead by the time the uh, city of Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians. But a hundred years before he had written these words, Isaiah 45 and verse 1, Thus saith, says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, he names him by name. In fact, in, in Hebrew history, we find that, that uh, the reason that later Artaxerxes would allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, remember ba uh, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to Babylon and the Persians would eventually release them to go back and rebuild the city? The reason they were released was because they showed him the prophecy that named him by name from these ancient scrolls and he was convinced that he had a divine a duty, an appointment with destiny to fulfill, and he allowed the Jews to return to their home. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors, so that the gates will not be shut. Just a, a little bit of a description of what would take place on that night. There would be a, a great rout of the Babylonian Empire and Babylon would fall to be taken place with a, uh, by an empire called Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia would rule from 539 to 331 B.C., and it would not last forever either. In fact, Daniel very quickly, he's just going through a succession in, in, in these verses, he, he very quickly says, next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And here we find described the empire of Alexander the Great and the, the Greeks. And um, very quickly, Alexander overcame and, and, and uh, conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, it was quite surprising that they should have such success because in the Battle of Arbella in 331, when the, when the Persians were defeated, Darius III had over a million soldiers engaged in the battle. Um, Alexander had 50,000. And yet, the Greeks overcame and that marked, the Battle of Arbella marked the decisive victory when the Greek Empire um, replaced the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, the Historical Library, Book 16, Chapter 12, I am persuaded that there was no nation, city, nor people where his name did not reach. There seems to me to have been some divine hand presiding both over his birth and actions. There the Greek historian Arian um, talks about the rise, the meteoric rise of of Alexander. But Greece wouldn't last forever either, 331 to 168 BC, and it would be replaced by an empire of iron. Remember? Head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, and legs of iron. And here on the scene of action comes the, uh, the next empire that's spoken of here in, in Bible prophecy. And this would take place on June 22, of 18, uh, 168 BC. On that date, at the Battle of Pydna, perished the empire of Alexander the Great 144 years 
after his death. The, the prophecy says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40, the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron. That's what it said. And we see here this kingdom which replaced Greece was the, the empire of Rome. And in fact, it was just a small city. It wasn't even really a country, but it would rule the world. And it would rule the world during a time which is very interesting to us of earth's history, the time when our Savior would come to this earth. It was Rome that would call for taxation, that would call uh, the parents of Jesus to Bethlehem, the city of David, for them to be taxed. That's why Jesus was born there in a fulfillment of, again, of Old Testament prophecy. It was also Ro a Roman uh, governor, Pilate, who would condemn Jesus to be crucified, turn him over to the Jewish rulers to do with him, with him as they wished, and um, he then would be crucified by Roman soldiers upon the cross. This was a, an empire that we're very interested in, an empire that, is, uh, that, was, that was the strongest of the, the four empires described here in Daniel. It would rule the world for the longest, in fact, from 168 B.C. all the way to 476 A.D., over 600 years, Rome would be on the scene of action, a formidable power. But Rome itself would not last forever. Now, you might just stop here and say, well, listen, Chester, this is just obvious. I mean, Daniel could, why couldn't he guess that one empire is going to be replaced by another, right? He could just say, of course, you know, that's what has always happened. Study history. But what's interesting is Daniel doesn't describe a fifth empire. He describes a dissolution of Rome into fragmented tribal, regional areas that would not, the empire of Rome would not be replaced by a monolithic power. Notice with me what it says in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. The people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. And so what, what's amazing to me is that Daniel did not predict another empire, and as we look at history, in fact, we see no empire came. Now, you might, you might find critics of the Bible that say, well, Daniel wasn't really written back 600 years before Christ. It was more, you know, just closer to the time of Christ. But there is no critic of the Scriptures, friends. There's no critic of the Scriptures that tries to put Daniel as being written 476 years into the, uh, the Christian era. None. It's impossible. In fact, Christ quotes Daniel, so you can't have him before the time of Christ. So how did Daniel know? How did Daniel know that Rome, nearly a thousand years later, would dissolve, break into pieces, and there would be no empire <coughs> governing Europe? Well, Daniel didn't know. God knew. And this is what we begin to see. Friends, this is amazing stuff. Now, some of you know this. Some of you have already been familiar with Daniel chapter 2. And, and listen, I'm sorry if this is old news, but every time I go through it, I get excited. Because God is an amazing God. He really is. And God knows the future. I, oh, I could tell you more stories, but I've got to move on. This is exciting. We'll, we'll, we'll have more time together. Europe would be divided from 476 A.D. all the way down to the present. And all you would have to do, all you would have to do to disprove Bible prophecy 
and to make a valid point for skeptics not to trust the Scriptures. All you would need to do was to reunite Europe into one nation, one country. That's all. And um, then you would have these prophecies having no meaning and not being fulfilled, but no one yet has been able to do it. In fact, it says in verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And, and here, you find, here you find in one of the, the palaces in Denmark, I've been there, there's actually a family tree of all the royalty of Europe and how they tried to stop the squabbles between the different nations of Europe by, you know, I'll give you my daughter and you give my son your niece and we'll just intermarry and intermingle our nationalities. Did that work? Absolutely not. I think it just made the, the, fam, the squabbles worse. They were now family squabbles, right? And now they were fighting each other, their own kinfolk, their own relatives. Um, the Bible says they will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And uh, a number of people throughout history have tried, tried desperately to, uh, to, do, to do what the prophecy says could not be done. From Charlemagne to Charles V, from Louis, the, Louis XIV, Napoleon, Kaiser Wilhelm, Adolf Hitler, they all tried to make Europe back to glue the pieces back together, the iron and clay, and make them stick, and they did not succeed. They could not succeed. I want to share with you just a few thoughts from Napoleon. Napoleon said, I, want to I wanted to found a European system, a European code of law, a European court of appeals. There would have been one people throughout Europe. Europe would have become one nation. Is he ambiguous about what his intentions were? Did he want to make Europe one? Yes, very clearly. And that was not possible because the prophecy says they shall not cleave one to another. In fact, at Waterloo, it is said that Napoleon made this comment after he was defeated, and, uh, and, and really that marked his, his, his downfall and demise, God Almighty has been too much for me. Why would he say that? Maybe he had an idea that he was fighting the prophecies that he was trying to do something that God said could not be done. Adolf Hitler said, See, my people, we do not want anything from God except that he may let us alone. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. Now, it's known that Adolf Hitler had a housekeeper who was a Christian who gave him a book on prophecy. And it's quite possible that Adolf Hitler, I don't know if he read it or not, but it's quite possible that Adolf Hitler knew something about Daniel chapter 2, and maybe he knew that if God were to be involved in the war that he was involved in, that he wouldn't be on Hitler's side. And he says, we want to fight our own, we want to have our own victory, he goes on, we want to have our own victory without the help of God. What a, what a, uh, what a challenge. And you know what? It looked like Hitler was going to succeed. I mean, he was unstoppable. He rolled through Poland and rolled through Europe and, and with very little resistance made it almost all the way to the, to the English Channel. And you know the story from your history books, how right there next to the English Channel, the, the European forces who had tried to resist Hitler were now stranded. They were about to be completely wiped out. And an immense fog settled down on the French coast. 
And uh, Winston Churchill got on the radio in, in England, and he called for anyone who had a boat, a fishing boat, a yacht, a, if it floated, he asked them to cross the English Channel and enter the cover of fog while the Luftwaffe was not able to fly. German, Germany's panzer divisions were ground to a halt. The armies of Europe were evacuated to regroup in England, and eventually, of course, you know, Hitler was defeated. Why? He was trying to do something that even the mightiest mechanized army of the day could not do, and that was to fight these seven words, they shall not cleave one to another. Is God's word trustworthy? Yes, God's word is trustworthy. We can see the rise and fall of brilliant men, of great men, of dictators, of, of one after another who have tried to do what, what God said could not be done. But the Bible said, they shall not cleave one to another. These words have stood the test of time and the test of some of history's greatest le leaders. Nebuchadnezzar's dream still stands today unchallenged. Not unchallenged, but un, unoverthrown, not overthrown. But it continues in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Let's skip down there. Daniel 2 and verse 44. It says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. So that's what that stone cut out with the hands represented. It represented God's kingdom that would take away the kingdoms of this world and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever, the prophecy says. Isn't that good news? There is going to be a, an eternal kingdom, but it's not going to be one of those that are set up by mankind. Notice the stone was cut out without hands, right? That means something, friends. All these symbols mean something. All the other empires were, were created by human effort and by human activity, but God wants us to know that the kingdom of, of, of God, which is going to last forever, is going to be established by God himself. He's going to set up a, a, a kingdom that will indeed last forever. Verse 45, this is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not with human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. I like the way the King James says it. That's New King James. King James says the interpretation is certain. It's trustworthy. You can depend upon it, friends. If all of these other prophecies have been fulfilled so far, guess what? We can be confident the rest of the vision will be, will be fulfilled as well. God is going to make an end of the world as we know it today. The interpretation is trustworthy, and God's kingdom is going to be a much better kingdom than what we have. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 11 and verse, uh, verse 15 says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and he shall reign forever. That's what's going to be said when Jesus' kingdom is set up on this earth. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God, our Lord, and he shall reign forever. When Nebuchadnezzar heard this dream, now, first of all, it's very clear that he knew this was in fact the dream that he had had. But furthermore, he knew that this was the God. This was a real God. This was not a God of wood or, or stone or, or precious metals. This was a God who was alive and knew mysteries and even knew what he was thinking about while he was falling asleep in his guarded bedroom. 
And the Bible records that Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the great monarch, the great ruler, fell at Daniel's feet and he said, truly, your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords because he is a revealer of secrets. Daniel 2, verse 47, surely your God is a God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. What a fantastic picture into the future Jesus God had given Nebuchadnezzar there that night, and he gave it to Daniel. And the good news is that this is not just a message for Nebuchadnezzar. This is a message of hope for us living in 2014. Because as we look through the, 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 the timeline of, of Daniel's dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation, we find ourselves living in that time described as iron mixed with clay, maybe down in the very tippy toes, I don't know, but we're right there, I believe, not too long before that stone cut out without hands is going to, is going to set up a, good, uh, a kingdom that will last forever. And friends, I, I want to confess to you, when I say the world is going to end, it's good news. All right? Sometimes we think, well, you know, all these bad things that are happening, how... Listen, all they are are indications that the world's about to end, and that's exciting. It's not bad. That's good news because there's a better world coming. There's something better, and you're going to see. I think I, you, can, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I can assure you that as we study these prophecies, you're going to find confidence that you can face the future unafraid. You don't have to be worried about what's going to happen. You don't, because there's a God that's on the throne who knows the future, and he's already prepared for it. And what's important is not that we know the future, but we know who holds the future. And he is more than able to take care of us. Yes, my friend, the dream is certain and the interpretation is sure, is sure. The journey is almost over. Perhaps you, like me, like Nebuchadnezzar, sometimes worry about the future. And I would say that this dream is for us, if that's, it, that's the case. It tells us that we don't need to worry. The stress and suffering and, and pain that sin has brought into this world is going to end. It's going to pass away. The God of heaven is going to, not going to leave us in this mess that sin has created. He's going to give us new heavens and a new earth. He wants us to be a part of that beautiful tomorrow. I believe that God wants to speak these words to every single one of us one day. One day soon, come you blessed of my Father, Matthew 25, 34, come you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Prepared for who? For Prepared for you. Oh, can you imagine hearing those words falling from Jesus' lips? They're real. The Bible says, I trust they're going to be spoken and they can be spoken to us. We can be certain today that we can be there by faith as a part of God's kingdom. All we have to do is do what the thief on the cross did as he hung next to Jesus, as Jesus was dying. You remember the story? He couldn't move any closer to Jesus. He was he was being crucified too, but he knew that he was a sinner, and he knew that he needed to be saved from those sins that he had committed. And so the thief of the cross looked over at the Savior of the world, dying, an innocent man, but dying for your sins and mine. He looked at that Savior, and he said in Luke 23, 42, remember me, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I believe that, heart, that, that, that thief's heart had been touched. And uh, Jesus spoke a word of assurance. He told him, most assuredly, you will be with me in my kingdom. You think we can have that kind of assurance? Yeah, we can. 
All we need to do is turn our life into the hands of the God who knows and controls the future. That's what I want this evening. And I believe that God is calling us to that experience today. I believe God wants us to to say in our heart of hearts, yes, Lord, I want to be a citizen of your kingdom. I want to be there on that day. I want to see when this world is made new, not by human hands, but by divine power. Please make me, by your grace, a citizen of the eternal kingdom. Do you want to say that with me tonight? You want to invite Jesus to give you that assurance that we don't have to be worried about the future. We can face the future unafraid because he holds the future and he can hold our hands. Is that your desire? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a wonderful God you are. Lord, we are just, we're just so excited to be able to spend time together studying these prophecies. Lord, no matter how many times, hundreds of times I I look at these and I read these, they still speak to me. I still get excited. I still get, Lord, courage and comfort from knowing that you are on the throne. Lord, tonight there's somebody here perhaps who is worried about the future. I don't know their burdens, but you do. And I pray tonight that you would just give them peace, that you would give them assurance, that if you can direct empires... If you can predict the rise and fall of powerful nations, if you can prevent armies from conquering, and Lord, if you can can do all this, surely we can trust you with our heart and our lives. So today, Father, I just thank you. Thank you that we can study prophecy. Thank you that you are coming again, that there will be an end to sin and suffering and all the pain that that uh, has come from it. And thank you that we can hold your hand tonight and know that you will not let go. We thank you for all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.